Congratulations. You're being released as asylum seekers, not as citizens, not yet. You will be sent to a home of our choosing. You must not move from this address. We are good people. Whether or not you're good people, it's not me that needs convincing. It's a palace. This entire house is just for us. It's going to be nice. You're going to be happy. As long as you can get along, fit in, be one of the good ones. This is our home. All I can taste is the metal. We'll get used to it. Everybody and welcome to the latest episode of Fresh Cuts. I'm one third of your hosting team tonight, Mike, and with me as always, it's Mr. Venom. How are you doing? Greetings and salutations, asylum seekers. Yes, I'm doing great, Mike. How are you doing? I am doing well. Doing well. Um, I don't know how much to add to that. <laughs> when you're doing well, you don't need to add anything to it. Yeah, really. We're headed for holiday season, so it could be great. It could be a disaster. It could be a little bit of both. Who knows? That's good for me. I mean, I got my Xbox, and on Thursday I'll get my PS5. So, yeah, I'm ready for the next generation. Yeah, I I will be getting a PS5 eventually. I just I don't know exactly when, but um, I definitely saved up the money ahead of time, and I'm thinking... It's probably going to be sometime next year where I'm going to get the PS5, a 4K TV, and like some type of surround sound to go with it, like all in one, nice. one big purchase. So I'm like in a rush, but not in a rush. You know, it's like I want yeah. it, but if I want to buy it all together, I gotta just make sure because I, I don't want to, I don't want to have to skimp on. You know, I'm not going out to get like top of the line competition quality equipment or anything, but I sure, sure. also don't want to have to cut too many corners. So we'll yeah. see. It'll it'll come together. The grand plan is is not too far off. But uh, joining us as well, probably very familiar with this individual by now. It's Don and Ellie. How you doing, Don? Hey, what's going on, folks? Uh, yeah, once again, happy to be here. Cool, glad to have you. So. 
on this episode, we are... I don't know if we mentioned this at the la- in, the, in the last episode as one of the possible ones. You know, we're still in the midst of lots of stuff dropping every week, so uh, I, I know off the episode it came up, but that would be uh, the Netflix movie His House. And let's see, it looks like it dropped at the very end of October, according to IMDb, so it's been around about 10 days now. I haven't heard a bunch of people talk about it, but I have seen some, so hopefully, I guess based on this review, um, people will want to seek it out or not seek it out you'll find out soon at least based on our opinions so the (laughs) synopsis on imdb see a refugee couple makes a harrowing escape from war-torn south sudan but then they struggle to adjust to their new life in an english town that has an evil lurking beneath the surface Ooh, that's a very loaded synopsis i mean it's it's not really kind of incorrect yeah, that's not necessarily what goes on here. That makes it seem like it's a cursed village or some yeah. kind of uh, group conspiracy against people, not uh, what actually happens here. But I'm okay with that, because at least it leaves it ambiguous enough that it didn't ruin anything for me, so I'm yeah. okay. Yeah, I think, yeah. and we'll get into that once we get to general thoughts and spoilers, I think the the synopsis is written kind of like it's... It's it's trying to talk about some of the messaging going on without really giving it away, but it gets a little convoluted. But anyways, let's start with general thoughts like usual. That'd be kind of crazy not to, right? <laughs> let's start with spoilers. No. Uh, Venom, general thoughts on his house. Oh, man, I really, really enjoyed this movie. Um This is a movie that kind of leaves the events within the film very ambiguous, um, this is one of those movies very much like the Baba Duke, where um, you can make an argument that none of the supernatural things that occur in the movie actually occurred. Um, the Baba Duke obviously being a story of, you know, a, a mother's guilt with the loss of her husband and everything. But uh, this movie kind of deals with the same thing. It's solidly a story about survivor's guilt. Uh, you know, we're dealing with uh, what Bol and Rial, two South Sudanese um refugees who escaped, you know, uh, war-torn Sudan uh, to, to the UK and obviously are treated, you know, the, the way many countries uh, treat their uh, immigrants and refugees incredibly poorly. But um, aside from the social commentary, um, you know, just a lot of really great horror set pieces, this movie is legitimately, um, I know a lot of people like to say, you know, is it scary? Is it a horror movie? Is it scary? And this one, I feel it legit has some really good tension, some really good scares. Um, one in particular that we'll get to, you know, when we get to the spoiler section, I, I, I found really, really cool. Think of the movie lights out as a, uh, a little precursor to that. But, um, yeah, I thought the performances were great, and and, and it's great to see um, the female actress. It's so hard to pronounce her name, Wanmi Masaku. She is also she also plays Ruby on Lovecraft Country. So anybody who's been watching, um, you know, Lovecraft Country uh, on HBO, you know, you know her as the as Big Sister Ruby. Um, you know, she she's like a, this sassy, awesome character on Lovecraft Country, but it's also great to see her range because then she plays a much more laid back, 
you know, a good wife type character here who's not as upfront and, you know, mouthy, you know, sassy, if you will. Um, so it, it just kind of shows a little bit of a range. Overall, performances here are great. It's funny, too, because I actually thought that the male lead in this movie was Atticus from Lovecraft Country for a, just a short for like five seconds, I thought it was him, the same actor. I actually had to look it up and realize, no, different actor. But, I mean, they look so much alike, you know, uh, the guy who plays Atticus easily probably could have done this role. But no complaints about the actor that they actually got to work in this one. His name is uh, Sope Derisu, um, who plays Ball or Bowl. Um but yeah, I mean, like I said, the social commentary is right there. You even get black-on-black -black racism, which is something I've never seen in film before. I Obviously, I'm not ignorant. I know it exists. But to actually see black British kids treating black Sudanese refugees like second-class citizens was like really eye-opening you just you don't really see that in our country anyway you don't obviously you don't see a lot of black-on-black -black racism here but yeah it, it was definitely kind of a jarring scene that's probably meant to be not, not really a throwaway scene but just kind of a passing scene that just kind of shows a little bit of the racism they have to deal with in their new country but Overall, like I said, I thought the scares were really cool. I love this story. The story of the Apeth um, just is really awesome. There's a In the second act, we get a verbalized story of the origin of the Apeth, or at least one instance of someone having to deal with that. And uh, for those who don't know, Apeth is the, uh, the Sudanese word for night witch. And we actually do hear the word witch referenced multiple times in the movie, even though it is a male uh, you never hear them say warlock. So definitely not a, uh, you know, judo-Christian European sense of a witch. Definitely more a South African thing, which, you know, is original to a lot of American audiences who aren't familiar with it. So, yeah, the story of the Apeth really enjoyed. I, I even love the ending of this movie. It's very satisfying. Um, and like I said, based on the type of viewer you are, you might say that this entire movie is just a metaphor for guilt and that none of it actually happened. Or you can say that it all happened and that these, you know, this poor couple was, you know, victimized by a witch uh, from their home country of Sudan. So uh, very effective set pieces, not really gory. I mean, there, there, there's no gore at all, really. It's just, um, you know, there's one kind of sad scene where a large group of women are slaughtered by, um, you know, warlords in the Sudan. Uh, luckily, we don't actually see it. We just see the after effect. But, I mean, uh, there's a, a couple of really just heartwarming slash tense scenes throughout the movie that really, really make you think about their journey, the, the you know, these two refugees' journey. Uh, I also want to say that uh, Matt Smith is in this movie. Yes, Doctor Who makes an appearance and does a great job, actually. I thought he did a really good job showing kind of his disdain for these refugees at first, but then after getting to know them more and more, he kind of starts to warm up to them until at the end of the film, he actually goes to bat for them, you know, to, to keep their home. So, yeah, just overall, great performances, good story. Um, I'm not sure if this movie is going to, you know, end up anywhere near my top ten by the end of the year. Um, there's a lot of qualities that point to it uh, being that high, but at the same time, um, 
as far as I personally, this was a totally new experience. You know, I've never been to the UK. I've never been to Africa. So, you know, definitely kind of new types of social commentary that I've never really. Um, and obviously classism and racism are there. But like I said, just a different type of classism and racism that we don't deal with in this country. So overall, really, really good movie. Enjoyed almost all of it for for a ghost story. I thought the pacing was great. Usually ghost slash haunted house stories are, you know, a little bit slower paced, blah, blah, blah. Kind of like another movie that came out last week, The Dark and the Wicked, which will we'll talk about a little bit later unless we decide that we're going to do it next week. But um, yeah, we um, October going into November, we've had some really solid horror releases and uh, this is no exception. Yeah. His house gets a high recommend from me. Um, I can't say enough good things about it. So I will pass it on to the next podcaster because you guys know me. I'll talk for two hours if you let me. All right, and that next podcaster would be Don and Ellie. So, Don, general thoughts? Yeah, um, I echo a lot of that. Um, I had a lot of fun with it. Uh, maybe not necessarily as much as Venom because I do have some issues with this. Mainly the third act, which uh, for me, it, it just feels like it's way too random, way too scattershot going back and forth through... Um, several different plot lines that I'm not a huge fan of the way that they did it, uh, taking everything um, all at once rather than laying it out in like a logical manner. Uh, otherwise, I don't have too many complaints. Uh, like you said, the pacing is fantastic. The scare scenes are pretty effective. Uh, there's a rather actual timely message in this and the fact that if they're told that they can't leave, so they're forced to stay there, even though it soon dawns on them that the, the house is haunted, which uh, I kind of like. Uh, it, it adds like a really chilling, uh, suspenseful atmosphere to the first two thirds of this. Um, just like I said, uh, the third act just kind of unravels a little of the tension by just switching back and forth through these various plot lines that don't hold as much weight and they aren't as well developed as the first two thirds of the film are. But other than that, um, I definitely enjoy this. I have a lot of fun with it. There's, you know, several spectacular scares, just a a few small little sections in the third act that just hold it down for me. Um, Definitely up, up there, maybe like, Uh, top 40, top 50 out of maybe 150 plus. So definitely a worthwhile time. Nowhere near top 10, nowhere near honorable mentions, but definitely a worthwhile time. And I I would have wished that this would have been an actual film set in the Sudan rather than Africa, rather than in the UK, because then I would have actually been able to check Africa off like I was hoping we would do when we first brought it up (laughs) last week. Because in the uh, the source of a country bingo for having watched a horror film from the, from a specific country, Africa's the one of the few that's still unchecked. So I was hoping for that, but I'll, I'll take this if this is you know it's a solid ghost story and it's definitely worthwhile. Yeah, I mean technically it starts in the Sudan, so I mean yeah. you kind of caught cut, and there are multiple flashback scenes back there, so I don't know. Yeah, I, I'd allow it. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, the leads are, um, I think they're both from there anyway. Mm-hmm. So, mm, yeah, maybe I'll actually, I'll maybe I'll end up uh, fudging my numbers and calling it. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, like I said, solid and worthwhile. Uh, just the third act kind of unravels a little for me, but not enough to completely derail the film. Mm. Okay. All right. Well, as far as I go, pretty much echo. I mean, Venom had a lot to say with general thoughts, so mostly agree with everything he said. This is definitely a movie that kind of does the blending of real life horror, situational horror, with um, the possible supernatural twist on things. Um, there is definitely a case to be made like, oh, is it really happening? Is it just guilt? Is it paranoia? Is it remorse? Um, is it you know all that kind of stuff it if you like movies like you know tigers are not afraid under the shadow um pan's labyrinth where they're you know taking people um either currently in or surviving messed up situations and making that the backdrop to the story and then you know even movies just about their situations in their life would probably be enough to make a good movie but then they're adding in the horror element as a way of storytelling and a way, you know, of giving exposition and enhancing kind of um, everything going on. If you like those type of movies, this will be right up your alley. I I personally do. I These are really the kind of movies I enjoy. And um, this is one with... Um, their background that from that country i didn't i mean i generally kind of know the situation uh with you know war-torn countries over there in africa and there's always you know refugees fleeing something and assimilations a big theme of this movie too um trying to assimilate the struggles with that um as we'll, yeah, as we'll discuss when we get into spoilers. But overall, I really enjoyed this movie. I thought it was well acted. I thought the story was good. I liked the way they blended the horror elements into this. And nothing much in this movie felt too heavy-handed either. It just felt like how, as far as like, you know, um, just kind of like explaining their backstory and how they ended up where they are. It, it just felt very plausible, the setup of the story. Like that's probably very accurate accurate as far as how things go when you're a refugee in a new country regardless of what country that is i mean we hear about stories like that here all the time just people from various different countries coming here trying to assimilate when you're first generation either refugee immigrant whatever but anyways um yeah i had a blast with this movie i actually did have a chance to watch this one a second time so um I I think it was just very well made. It's on Netflix. I would say everyone should check it out. Yeah, and this is a directorial debut as well from uh, Remy Weeks is the name of the director. Um, and once again, I mean, it seems like 2020 is the year of really good directorial debuts. We've had a few this year, and this is just another one. Um, just 
amazing that he's able to put together a story like this on his first attempt. So, yeah, definitely a director to be on the lookout for. Hopefully he stays with horror because um, he definitely, especially with this being a Netflix original, he definitely seems like he could broaden his horizons to other genres. But I would really like to see him continue with the kind of tribal horror type films. Mm -hmm. Maybe even next time actually have it set in Africa, like Don was saying, that would that would bring a whole new element to our genre, too. So. Um, yeah. But yeah, definitely wanted to point that out, that this is a directorial debut, because, I mean, when you see the performances, when you see the set pieces, when you see the shot selection and everything else, I mean, you know, that, <laughs> this guy's already better than uh, Uwe Boll. <laughs> but then again, I'm a better film director than Uwe Boll, so whatever. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I, I think, you know, movies like this, it gives it gives people a new reason to kind of watch, like, you know, haunted house movies or uh, whatever. I mean, this, I would say it's kind of like a hybrid of a genre, but you know, how many movies do we see come out that, you know, thrown on Netflix or shutter or wherever. And it's, it's just so similar to things you've seen before. Oh, the house is cursed or this or that, but movies like this come along and there really feels like a real justified purpose for, what's going on it's just not like a random ghost that's mad that people are in its house or you know some you know something like that not not that all those movies are bad when they do that because obviously in this one yes there's going to be some or plenty of tropes within that structure that you've seen before but it still feels like you're seeing something a little bit new and different because of the story that's driving everything and that's probably all I got for general thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, yeah, this is, like I said, this is one that I can talk up a lot between its performances, its score, its direction, um, and, and its storytelling, which really is, you know, one of my favorite things about this movie is just that they give us a really cool uh, original story, somewhat original, obviously. It's not like, you know, a witch or spirit, you know, going, traveling with a family is the most original concept ever, but... You know, uh, a lot of the symbolism in this movie uh, works in its favor. I mean, especially on second watch, I'm sure Mike can tell you, on that second watch, a lot of the images early on make a lot of sense, a lot more sense for obvious reasons, which actually heightens the enjoyment of it, at least did for me on my second watch. So, yeah, this is definitely a movie that I feel should be watched by uh, all horror fans, but especially American ones who maybe don't know what it's like to live in a war-torn country. This movie isn't necessarily going to really paint that accurate a picture, but at least it's going to give you a taste of what these people have to deal with, how they could be having this great little you know, idyllic scene, and then suddenly out of nowhere, two truckloads of warlords show up and just start shooting everybody that moves, you know? Um, it just gives you a little bit of taste of that. And, um, you know, I always appreciate movies um, that bring something to the genre that maybe either we haven't seen a lot of or at least um, something we've seen, but from a different lens, maybe. Uh, in this case, the lens of South Sudanese, um, you know, refugees. So, yeah. Um, I said a lot of the same things about uh, Last One's Out a few uh, a, a few years ago. That was the zombie movie that Mike and I were speaking about last episode. Or I, I don't know if we spoke, to, spoke about it on the air or if it was after. But yeah, Last One's Out is probably the most 
set in Africa horror film that I've ever seen. And that was a really good different you know kind of zombie you know take on the zombie genre as well so i so just like this is a kind of a different take on the witch genre or ghost um you know haunting genre uh same thing with last one's out so yeah uh, a lot of really cool stuff coming out of uh, south africa and that's awesome i mean whether this film was actually made in south africa is you know it was probably shot mostly in the uk if not all in the UK, because I know there's areas of the UK that they can make to look like any part of the world. So, um, yeah, if there's nothing else, I guess we can go into spoilers. I mean, this is probably going to be a quick one because there's a lot of quiet scenes in this movie that add a lot more to the feel of it. It's not really anything that I'm going to be able to portray in words, but, um, you know, I'll definitely go over all the horror set pieces and the main plot points, and I'll even talk a little bit about some stuff that I researched, because uh, they actually do make a point in this movie to talk about Rial's facial markings, and I actually wanted to, you know, I was curious about the origins of those, so I went ahead and looked those up, and I've got a tiny little thing that I can read for you later on once we actually get to that part of the movie, but yeah, if no one else has anything um, non-spoiler to talk about, I guess we can go through the walkthrough. I'm good. All right. So, yeah, let's do it. All right. Our our movie opens up, and uh, it's actually, I mean, we don't know that they're in the Sudan, but we can, we basically see a couple, you know, part of a larger group of people basically getting onto trucks to try to escape some area for whatever reason. There's no dialogue at this point. It's it's really just a, bu- a, a bunch of establishing shots. And then out of nowhere, we see the same group of people now out in the open ocean on these very small boats carrying probably five, four or five times more people than these little boats are supposed to carry. So obviously we know that we're dealing with refugees. Um, Obviously everyone, you know, without reading the synopsis, you can see that everyone in the movie thus far is black. So, you know, we can make a a pretty good guesstimation that they are like South African refugees. Later on, it is established that they are from the Sudan and they talk about the Dinka tribe, which actually is a real tribe. So uh, we'll also talk about that a little bit. Um, And. And then uh, as they're in the ocean, one of the boats capsizes, um, basically dumping out a bunch of refugees into the ocean. We see a hectic scene of people yelling. It's nighttime and there's lightning flashing. So, of course, we're getting like a strobe effect, blah, blah, blah. And then it just goes from there. uh, We see one single figure kind of sink into the water. And then we go to our title card, His House. At this point, we are introduced to Rial and Bol, who are um, basically they're in front of some type of committee. It looks like um, it looks like when they got to the UK, they probably were put in some kind of refugee camp, and now they're in front of a committee who's basically establishing their value for the UK as far as you know. Do we let them go? Let them become citizens? And you know, um, you know, do whatever they want within our country. Unfortunately, they are given freedom from the refugee camp, and they're even given a house, hence the name of the movie. 
but they are given some pretty strict guidelines. Um, they're told that they're going to get a stipend every month of like something like 70 something pounds, which I have no ideas you know, what that you know will get you in modern day UK. And it is modern day because uh, Bowl has a cell phone in the movie. So, yes, it is definitely modern day. Um, and uh, let's see, like they're told that they're only going to get like a 70 pound stipend every month. Uh, they're told that they, they cannot work. They are not allowed to work. Um, in fact, yeah, so, some of these some of these rules I don't understand. Now, there may be yeah. like actual mm-hmm. refugee or not refugee, but um, like immigration laws in these other countries that I'm not aware about. There may be reasons behind this, but like as he was listing all things, like you can't work. I think, I like, I think huh? some of some of them, I believe, are meant to determine like what kind of, of like their influence and their personality would be. Absolutely. Whether you know whether or not you know they're going to be like certain you know like a like what's their general everyday personality going to be like with you know are they going to be like crazy are they going to be you know like bloodthirsty or like how are they going to be able to accumulate assimilate into a general society absolutely yeah i can see that definitely um the whole thing with not working i can see because they're not technically citizens yet they haven't been given citizenship they've been they've been given refugee status so they can legally be in the country but they probably can't legally work so it's it probably wasn't necessarily uh, the, the administration of the refugee camp flat out telling them you can't work. It's probably more a, a UK, you know, rule or whatever. Until you get citizenship, you can't have an official job, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, like um, why, would you take, why would a refugee take a job away from a paying, from a nas- national born citizen? Exactly, yes. Um, and then the last uh, thing that they're told is um, they're actually, it's actually suggested to them that they just not leave their house. Um, I don't think they're given specific orders saying you're not allowed to leave your house because multiple times throughout the film, you know, they'll no, leave, that, uh, take a the walk. The thing is, is that they can't move to a new house. Oh, right, right. That's it. They can't leave yeah. the house. As yeah, in that's they what they mean move. by, yeah, they, yep, yep. it's not, yeah, it's more about leave. It's about moving into a new house. That's gotcha. Yeah, that makes more sense. Uh, so, yeah. So um, we then meet Matt Smith, who plays uh, the caseworker for Bowl and Rial. He is uh, bringing them to their new house, and it's kind of funny, too, because um, there's little tiny signs of classism throughout the film that you can kind of pick up. And uh, one of the big ones is two or three times in the film, people make the comment that their house is bigger, that that Bowl and Rial's house is bigger than theirs, even though they're, you know, natural citizens, blah, blah, blah. And I, I found that really interesting because... They kind of live in a low-rent neighborhood. It's not exactly a slum because there are a lot of white Brits in the neighborhood. There's a lot of black ones, too, but there are some white Brits there. So it's not necessarily like, you know, a slum or a ghetto. It's just a slightly lower-rent neighborhood. But um, It's almost like a Section 8. Kind of. I, I, well, Section 8. <laughs> Isn't that the crazy one? <laughs> no, oh, District not, 9? No, Is that no. what you're thinking of? <laughs> not District 9. Se- okay. Section 8 housing. It's like lower Oh, Section 8 housing. Yes, okay. I know what a Section 8 Where is. Where you get a lot of mix of like people in transition or just lower wage people that need, you know, the help with lower rents. Um, well, they call it Section 8. They obviously have some kind of mental disorder, too, so they're being separated for a more <laughs> obvious reason. 
So, I mean, that's what Section 8 is. A Section 8 is a release from the armed forces because you're mentally unstable. That's literally what a Section 8 is. So, no, I'm not Section 8, about, like, Section 8 mental status, Section 8 housing, yeah. Is that different? I, I guess I've never, just never heard of Section 8 housing before. It's definitely different because I had no idea what you were just telling me. But yeah, <laughs> as far as like, remember, remember um, Jamie Farr's character on MASH? He was a Section 8 because he was crazy, remember? He, he always wore women's dresses and blah, blah, blah. Uh, yeah. What was his name? Klingon, I think, or Klinger, Klinger, something like that. Uh, it's been so long since I've watched MASH, but yeah. All right, All right. so I anyway. definitely say, yeah, it's different. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, back to his house. Uh, like I said, Matt Smith is now um, bringing uh, these people to their new house. Um, he opens the front door, and lo and behold, the front door completely comes off its hinges. So already we're kind of seeing the state of the house that they've been given this great big house because they get this big long explanation about how they usually would put two or three families in one of these housing units, but that for some reason they're getting their own. It's never really explained why. And they almost, when they say it, they almost say it like in a nefarious way, almost like Matt Smith knows that there's something wrong with the house, but technically we'll, we'll, we'll get to that. Um, so, um, Matt Smith, you know, uh, their caseworker continues showing them through the house, wallpaper falling off the walls, holes in the walls and floor, um, discarded pizza boxes with just an army of roaches inside of the boxes. Yeah, definitely no one cleaned this place in between families. So uh, that kind of shows you just what these people think of their of these refugees, blah, blah, blah. Um, but throughout throughout the film, they do uh, every now and again, we'll actually meet someone uh, who actually is sympathetic to their cause. Like um, during the first act, Bowl is actually out doing groceries uh, for the family and uh, he walks by like a church slash pub <laughs> and uh, he, he gets like a box of supplies, like a, a random guy standing outside just says, hey, are you one of those refugees? He says, yes. And he says, come in. We have something for you. And he hands them this big box of supplies, not the box of supplies that Matt Smith gives them when they move in a whole nother one. So, um, you know, there are sympathetic people here. So that's nice to see that they're not literally in hell. They're just, you know, um, strangers in a strange land more than anything. Um, and it's actually a cute little scene because uh, then all the uh, all the white Brits in the pub start singing a song for their football team. They're watching football on the television, soccer to us Americans. And uh, they start kind of chanting the team song and Bowl actually joins in uh, the chant, which instantly gets everyone in the pub, like, you know, smiling and on his side. So that was a cool little scene that uh, unfortunately, since Rial was not in that scene, um, you know, she doesn't really get a whole lot of the sense of home that, uh, Bull gets. I mean, even to the point where throughout the movie, Bull says, this is our home. Even though they literally just moved here, they, you know, they haven't been here for long. They have no possessions of their own, just whatever was in the house when they got there. Um, but he still says multiple times throughout the film, this is our home. 
Um, and that's kind of a key thing because um, he looks at this place as a home long before Rial does. Rial, it takes almost till the third act before she's really ready to, to say goodbye to the Sudan and to consider this place her actual home. So there's that little bit of a separation there uh, between the couple, who I assume are married. I don't know that they actually flat out say it, but I assume they are. So um, Their general body behavior, I never really questioned whether or not they were. Yeah, exactly. And he, ooh, was he, actually, now that I think about it, I think I did remember seeing a ring on his hand in one scene when one of the spirits reached out to him. So, yeah. Um, basically, after moving in, uh, they start having these weird, um, you know, encounters in the house. Bowl is uh, trying to fix the electricity, which doesn't work in the house. Um, like I said, this place is beyond dilapidated. I mean, in America, this place wouldn't be livable, but apparently in the UK it is. It's good enough for a refugee. So, um, like I said, there's uh, he on the very first night there, wallpaper is already peeling off the wall, um, and Bull thinks that he hears the voice of a child in the house, and that's key uh, for a plot point later on, which I'll get to here in a few minutes. Uh, but basically, you know, the first night, you know, the couple's seen just kind of eating in the dark. Um, and he's just kind of going around the house trying to fix. He's he's pulling, like, dead cables out of the wall. There's one scene where he's pulling a large cable out of the wall, and it actually turns into a rope with seaweed on it. So it kind of lets you show, mm-hmm. let, lets you see a little bit of his mental state. There's obviously something still in his head that's bothering him. Um, the symbolism throughout this movie is very apparent, at least on second watch anyway. Um, but during this scene, uh, when he's pulling this rope out that just seems endless, he's pulling at it for what feels like a solid minute. And then finally, when he pulls the end of the rope out, there's a doll attached to it. And the doll belongs to his daughter. Yes, this is where we find out that they had a daughter uh, when they were escaping from Sudan, but unfortunately she did not make it. Uh, we, we, As the viewer, you probably assume that you know she passed away during the boat capsizing, and you would be correct, um, but we don't get total confirmation on that uh, until the end of the movie. Like I said, the movie definitely is very sparing with plot points throughout the first two acts, just giving you little bits here and there. But, you know, um, uh, just the way that the house is shot, the way that they use candles for lighting because the electricity doesn't work yet on the first night. Just it it all just looks really, really well done. Let's see. And then uh, basically on on the first night, like I was saying, ball, you know, the whole thing with the rope and everything. Um, you can kind of see his mental state start to go down a little bit because after the interaction with the rope um, and the doll, oh, and I, I forgot to mention, by the way, too, when the doll is pulled out of the wall and he recognizes it as his daughter's doll, a hand comes out through the hole in the wall, grabs the doll back and pulls it into the wall. Um, and then that's where he kind of comes to. And then at that point, He this is where he starts like purposely peeling all the wallpaper off the walls and everywhere that he thinks that he hears um, like voices or banging or footsteps. He like takes a hammer and tries to smash whatever's on the other side of the wall, eventually leaving his house looking like a overloved piece of Swiss cheese, just holes (laughs) everywhere. (laughs) Um, 
so then it's it's their like second or third day in the house and bowl decides to go to the store while he's at the store he actually sees like a picture of what he considers to be just your average white British person. And he actually goes and buys the exact outfit in the picture, which really shows that Bowl really is trying to adapt. He wants to be considered a true Brit. He wants to be respected, you know, by the locals, blah, blah, blah. Um, so like I said, he buys that outfit and he wears it for a lot of the rest of the movie. Uh, so yeah, it, it, uh, it, it basically, it's like a gray striped polo with some khaki pants. Like I said, he sees it on an ad and, uh, you know, like a display on the wall and he just buys it instantly. So uh, like I said, showing that he wants to adapt. Uh, basically the next scene is Rial looking for the town doctor when they first moved in, uh, Matt Smith, uh, their care, their caseworker gave them a little map of the neighborhood since they're new and she, and he marks on the map where the neighborhood doctor's office is. There's a doctor that, you know, the the, the people of that community go to. Uh, so she's out looking for the doctor one day and she gets lost. Um, she basically gets lost in what looks like a maze of brick walls and backyards and things like that. Until she finally runs into three or four local black British children. Uh, I say children. They, they're teenagers. Definitely yeah, teenagers. Teenagers. 17 uh definitely old enough to have you know the adult attitude but with the tiny bodies so yeah um she walks up to them and asks uh do you know where the doctor is it's on uh a certain street um church street i think it was and she asks do you know where church street is and there's three boys there and all three of them give her different directions they're all like no it's over there you go down that street blah 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 Obviously, Rial realizes that they're fucking with her. They're purposely giving her bad directions. And they even make a comment as she's walking away about going back to her own country. This is what I meant earlier about the black-on-black racism. Just something I've never, ever experienced. And to see a black teenager tell a black woman to go back to her country is a little jarring. You know what I mean? I'm sure in England and in other parts of Europe it's fairly common. Um... But man, it definitely took me aback a little bit. So yeah, crazy little I scene think, there. <laughs> I, I think her, her refugee status is what it's about. She's not viewed. I mean, even yeah. I guess lineage-wise, they're both African, but it's refugees are treated pretty poorly. Oh hey, I'm American. I know. I know the way we treat our. Uh, well, not that they're refugees here. Uh, you know. Uh, we call them immigrants here or whatever, but yeah, um, yeah, it's not. Yeah, that, not to say yeah, but like I said, just to actually better, but... to actually see it on film, it was just something new for me. So, um, so eventually, uh, Rial does find the doctor's office, and um, you know she goes um, to get a checkup, basically. And the doctor, the female doctor that's working on her, actually makes a comment about her facial scars. Um, the scarification that you may have seen some African tribes practice. Um, the doctor basically asks her, oh, did you get those when you were young? And she basically says, well, the ones on my head I uh, I got, you know, as part of my ritual. 
but the ones on my arm I did with a knife. And they're, you know, it doesn't look like she's literally slicing herself. It looks like it's still like a, a nice scarred design on her arm. But, you know, she makes the comment that she did it to herself, you know, because of the lack of freedom that women in the Sudan have. And right now, I just want to talk a little bit about that scarification, especially the way it's um, used in the Dinka tribe of the South Sudan. Real quick, um, as far as for women goes, uh, facial scarification is practiced among many ethnic groups in South Sudan. Various marks across the faces of tribes, men and women, give identity to the tribe and give beauty to its women. So this is something that it's almost like a rite of passage. Like once these girls and, and they are girls, the, uh, these people are scarred when they're children, um, which obviously a lot of human rights activists have had issues with this over the years, the different kind of mutilation that different um, African tribes will do, uh, you know, to their children and adults. So, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, but then as far as for the men, it takes on an even bigger role. Um, it, it's still a rite of passage in the sense that it's a passage from boyhood to manhood. But in the Dinka tribe, literally, if it, it doesn't matter how old you are. If you don't have any scarification on your face or forehead, then you're considered a child. No matter how big and how old you are, you're considered a child. Whereas um, if you're like a 12-year-old, who gets scarred, you're considered an adult. You're literally in the Dinka tribe considered an adult to the point where um, there was a boy who in this article that I found, his name was James. Uh, he was a 12-year-old boy attending primary school in, uh, in South Sudan. He left his school one morning for his traditional head marking ceremony. And I mean, to read this article, it just sounds absolutely torturous. This is literally an entire day event where these kids and yes, like I said, children are basically bleeding out for hours. And it is common for people to die during the scarification process, which is why it's held in such high regard when you are, you know, fully scarred up and, you know, people respect you more, blah, blah, blah. Um to the point where this kid actually said, this 12-year-old uh, kid, James, um, I'm sure this is just a name for the article. I don't know how many people from South Sudan are named James, but whatever. Uh, he basically said that his family wouldn't allow him to speak to girls, like not even in a friendly way. Like he was not allowed to interact with the opposite sex in any way, shape, or form until he got this scarification. And that's a heavy toll. I mean, that's got to that's got to weigh really heavy on a teenager's psyche, um, especially at that age where our hormones are going crazy and all we want to do is talk to girls and hang out with our friends and blah, blah, blah. But it's all stuff that they weren't allowed to do until they went through this process. So and uh, they actually uh, uh, they actually make the comment in this that James, the 12 year old, is actually a very underdeveloped child. He's very short. He's like five foot two, about one hundred and four pounds. Mm -hmm. But that he's considered more of a man than any adult in the Dinka tribe who does not have the scarification. So there you go, folks. That tells you a little bit about um, the scarification that we see in this film on uh, Rial's face and a little bit more of the explanation on what it symbolizes for their tribe. Um, but yeah, uh, basically, uh, at this point, Rial is at the doctor's office telling her this 
just very long and sad story about, you know, them escaping the Sudan and having to go across the sea and the fact that not everybody survived, that they lost a lot of people during the, uh, you know, the ocean crossing, blah, blah, blah. Um, you know, throughout the film, we also get more kind of instances of uh, white Brits kind of mistreating the refugees' neighborhood. At one point, Rial looks out her kitchen window and sees a white girl literally urinating in her backyard or front yard, maybe, depending on what side of the house it is, with no respect whatsoever, actually looks up and sees Rial in the window and just walks away like she doesn't care. So, yeah, kind of shows you a little bit of the disrespect that the refugees have to deal with uh, on a day-to-day basis here. Um, but at this point we are, uh, back in the house and, um, this is where we all has her first encounter with anything weird in the house. Um, she actually sits on the floor in one of the rooms that bowl has already stripped all the wallpaper off of and has already pounded some holes into the wall and a peach, or I think it's a peach. It's either an apple or a peach actually like rolls into the room, um, from nowhere, from like the hallway. And obviously, uh, Rial is the only one in the house at this point. So once again, you know, a little, you know, set up for some of the supernatural stuff that's coming. Um, Bol and Rial sit down to a nice dinner that Rial has made for them. And instantly she talks about wanting to go back home. Uh, she talks about how they don't belong there. They should leave. Bowl is obviously more acclimated than her already, talking about how much he loves it there, that they have their own house, um, you know, blah, 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 that he'll be able to get a job, you know, all this good stuff, and that they will thrive in this new city as long as they stay together and work together as a couple, which is definitely a big theme of this movie as well, is Bowl and Rial's relationship and then the eventual decision that's made at the end of the movie which like i said we'll get to in a little bit but uh yeah just a cool little scene a little quiet scene with them having dinner at candlelight because ball still hasn't fixed the uh uh the lighting and actually uh their caseworker actually said when he dropped them off at the house yeah i'll call somebody to get those repairs taken care of for you and of course no one ever shows up to make those repairs so once again more of the disrespect that you know refugees have to deal with um this is where uh we get our first mention of the apef and like i said the apef is explained by real uh as being the word for a night witch and she basically tells the story of a thief uh, from her village who was caught stealing and that it made an, an Apef. Uh, I'm sorry, the spelling is A-P-E-T-H, if anybody wants to look that up. Uh, basically... Sounds right to me. I think that's actually the pronunciation she used in the film anyway. Yeah, yeah, it's Apef. I thought it was yeah. Apoth at first, but I think it's just the accent. Yeah, I, but I turned on uh, yeah, the subtitle. Yeah, yeah I did Apef. the same thing. I did the same thing too earlier on when they kept on switching to their native language. Yep. That's what it looked to me, but I mean, I was just going off of the Netflix subtitle, so yeah. I, I mean, it sounds like Opeth to me anyway, so. Yeah, it is. I looked it up and, yeah, found a whole bunch of stories about uh, Sudanese, because um, uh, the Opeth is very specific to the South Sudan, so, um, you know, it, it's it's kind of like, you know, their little urban legend. But like I said, at this point, Rial is tell- telling the story to Ball of the Night Witch and how it attached itself to a thief because basically the Apeth 
uh, what the OPEP will do is to make people pay if they have a certain debt that they haven't paid. Uh, we're not talking about money here. We're talking about um, you know, life, uh, possessions, things like that. So in this case, in the story that she's telling, she's talking about the debt that the thief owed to the people that he had stolen from and that the Apeth would not leave him alone until he had completely consumed him. Um, we don't really get an explanation of what that means, but we kind of, <laughs> we get a little clue at the end of the movie. So, you know, uh, we'll, uh, we'll talk about that more when we get to it, but yeah, basically. And then, after telling this story of the Apeth and the thief to Bull, she is basically um, convinced that they have an Apeth following them. And she says that it's probably because of, you know, our, you know, the circumstances of us leaving and, you know, you know, um, maybe what debt Bull may owe for his new his newfound freedom in the UK blah, blah, blah. And then this is where we find out again about their daughter and how we get the confirmation that, yes, she died uh, during that scene when the boat capsized in the ocean. Um, Bol, uh, excuse me, Rial, the female, she's very, she, she's a very spiritual person. So, you know, she's very much of the belief that the daughter's still alive in one form or another. Uh, whereas Bull is like the sensible, the sensible guy who's basically saying, no, she's dead. Get over it. You know, terrible thing to say to a mother. I know. But, you know, they're, they're trying to build a new life in their new community and everything else. So, yeah, there is that. Um, later on in the house, um, Bull is seen continuing to peel wallpaper off the walls. And suddenly he hears like a stabbing sound in, in the other room. He walks into the room where he hears the stabbing sound and he actually sees his daughter uh, wearing a mask, some kind of very cool, scary, tribal looking mask. Uh, she has a knife in her hand and she's basically just stabbing the floor, the wood floor over and over again. Uh, Bowl walks up to her and he's shocked that it's his daughter. He recognizes her instantly. Um, she tries to attack him with a knife but he picks up his cell phone and turns on the light, uh, you know, the, the flashlight on the cell phone. And instantly his daughter's uh, image disappears from the room. Totally gone. Uh, at that point, he runs out of the house and sees one of his neighbors sitting at her porch smoking a cigarette. And he just smiles because, like I said, Bowl is so fixated on being assimilated here and making sure that no one has a reason to dislike him or complain about him or anything at all. So, you know, like I said, he just kind of plays it off and blah, blah, blah. Um, he comes back into the house and Rial is standing at the top of the stairs and he says to her, you saw her, didn't you? And of course, Bowles is going to play, you know, ignorant and be like, who? And she's like our daughter. And of course, he doesn't really acknowledge her. He doesn't answer her yes or no. He just kind of walks away and decides to go into the closet and pull out all of the personal items that they brought with them from the Sudan. Uh, basically, you know, just a few clothes, maybe the pair of shoes they were wearing, uh, the doll that I mentioned earlier, their daughter's doll, and, you know, a piece of jewelry that Rial had kept as a keepsake from her daughter. Uh, Bol decides 
Um, we must have brought something with us from the Sudan. Something evil is following us. So he makes the decision to literally burn all of their possessions that they didn't get in the UK. So everything that they brought with them, he literally puts into a bonfire and burns it, much to the, you know, um, disapproval of Rial. She obviously is not happy that he's burning their daughter's last toy and even the necklace that um, basically Rial took a string of like um, costume jewels off of the hem of the doll and turned it into a necklace. So that's like her keepsake of her daughter. And we get a pretty intense moment where Bol tries to grab it off her neck and she tries to stop him and says, please don't take the only thing I have left. Obviously, Bol is convinced that, you know, whatever is haunting them is attached to something they brought with them, which is an odd thought, but whatever. Um, and then, you know, like I said, much to Rial's dismay, he ends up going ahead and burning everything. But uh, luckily, it's kind of like almost like a like the thought process of like we have to basically leave everything from back there behind or it will or the past will follow us here. Probably exactly. something yep. like that. Absolutely. No, you're right. And uh, like I said, it's an odd way to believe, especially in the modern world. Now, obviously, these people are from a third world country, so it's a little bit, you know, hard to put myself in their headspace. I have no idea where they're coming from. But yeah, I mean, you know, um, there's more uh, more scenes of kind of disrespect throughout the movie. There's a scene where Bull is in a clothing store, like I said, uh, buying those clothes that he sees in the ad, and we see a white security guard just follow him around. They never interact, and I don't think Bull even ever notices them. It's more for the audience. We notice that Bull is being followed around the store. So, again, it says a little bit more about how refugees are treated here. Uh, we get another dinner scene with our couple at the house. Uh, once again, talking about, you know, want, you know, Rial talking about wanting to go home, not being happy here, not being happy trapped in this house, in this neighborhood where we can't do anything, blah, blah, blah. Whereas Bol goes out almost every day. I don't know if this is like a carryover from Sudan where, you know, women aren't really supposed to leave the home by themselves uh, blah 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 you know common in a lot of african and european countries but here it seems like it's a carryover you know even though they're in the uk they're still kind of following that sudanese rules so who knows but um yeah then the movie starts to get really really trippy like we start to see like um there's a dinner scene where rial leaves the dinner table in a huff and uh, Bowl is seen sitting at the table by himself eating. And then the camera pans out, like comes out. Of, and we see that Bowl's not actually in a kitchen. He's actually in the middle of a large ocean sitting at his dinner table um, eating his dinner. But then finally he hears a voice, this big grand voice, um, almost like the voice of God, you know, come out of nowhere, start talking to him. I don't remember the specific things that were said, but um, Bol does see uh, the Apeth for the first time during this little flashback. And when he looks down at his feet, he sees all the dead bodies, all the refugees that didn't make it uh, because of the boat capsizing. Um, he gets scared and falls down, and then suddenly we see all of them stand up. Yes, all of the spirits, all the dead people stand up out of the water, 
Um, they start to approach Ball, which obviously scares him out of his dream, and he wakes up back in his luxurious uh, house uh, in the UK uh, with all the walls stripped and holes all over the place, blah, blah, blah. We get another scene uh, after he wakes up from this dream. Uh, we get another interaction where he's sitting alone in the room. Uh, at this point, he has fixed the electricity, but he's just sitting in a dark room by himself. And he hears the voice of his daughter say his name. Uh, and then he sees a spirit that's not his daughter. It's, a, it's, a, it's an adult spirit start to walk towards yeah. him in the dark. And then this is where we get the cool kind of lights out scene I was talking about earlier. Um, as the spirit approaches him, he turns the lights in the room on and the spirit disappears. Then, uh, obviously out of curiosity, he turns the lights back off and sees the spirit again. But this time there's more spirits. There's like two or three of them. Turns the lights back on. Nobody visible in the room. Turns the lights back off. Suddenly there's like a dozen spirits in there with them and one of them we see is his daughter she's in the back um you know still wearing that creepy cool mask with a knife in her hand and at that point all the spirits start to converge on him they start to actually surround him and grab him um his daughter jumps on him uh jumps on his back with a knife in his uh, in her hand and she's trying to slit his throat but he's obviously you know with his right hand he's keeping her from slicing his throat and then with his left hand he reaches over to the light switch and everyone disappears um but then he looks at one of the holes that he created in the wall with his hammer and he notices that his daughter is in the wall looking back at him he actually goes to chase her and she actually runs like it sounds like she's running inside the walls um, up to another level because then suddenly she's a little bit higher. Uh, there's a higher hole in the wall that she's suddenly on. And that's when he just goes completely ballistic. He grabs the hammer that he just bought and just goes nuts on the room, just creating even more holes that are already there. Um, you know, making the place look even worse. And, you know, just you can tell that he's having he's starting to really crack now. He's starting to break down. Uh, the next scene, we are back at the administrative office with uh, Matt Smith, his caseworker, and he's basically requesting somewhere else to live. Um, but of course, he's a he's an intelligent adult. He's not going to tell them that there's a witch or that there's ghosts in my house. So he basically tries to play it off as vermin. There's rats in the house. There's cockroaches and that they're making my wife and I sick. She had to go see the doctor the other day and they suggested that we move out. Um, at that moment, uh, one of the other caseworkers in the room, like in the background, uh, drinking a cup of coffee, makes that same statement uh, from earlier again. His house is even bigger than mine. <laughs> Instantly, I'm thinking, well, shit, trade with him then. <laughs> you can have the haunted house and let him have yours. But, of course, uh, Bull being the stranger in a strange land doesn't, you know, tries not to get sarcastic with people and just lets their comments go by. Um, Matt Smith, the caseworker, is uh, trying to get more information. He lets Bowl know that I can, um, what do you call it, uh, get you a new place to stay, but we have to have a valid reason. You can't just say, I need a new place. 
Um, so if you're going to claim that there's vermin in the house, I need to go inspect it. I need to go and make sure that everything is, you know, up on the up and up and that, you know, we can either get rid of the vermin for you or move forward with getting you a new house. Instantly at that point, Bull is like, he remembers, oh shit, I've pretty much destroyed that house. And he instantly is like, well, no, 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 there's no real need for you guys to come out there. The house is fine, blah, blah, blah. He's trying to play it off really well. But you can tell, I mean, he's sweating. His hands are kind of trembling a little bit. You can tell that he's just completely stressed out to the point that during this meeting, he's actually handed a glass of orange juice. And while he's talking about the things that are happening in the house with the vermin, he actually, without realizing it, crushes the glass in his hands. Um, not just in one hand. He's holding it with both his hands. And he ends up just crushing it into a, just dozens of pieces. Instantly, he's embarrassed and just runs out of the house, uh, you know, basically not continuing with his paperwork for the relocation that he was that he was requesting. Um, but then basically uh, later on, Matt Smith and those guys do end up um, showing up at the house. They start inspecting everything. It's basically just um, his caseworker and one other person. And he basically says, um, you know, you must have the biggest rats I've ever seen. These holes are gigantic. At this point, he's still trying to play it off. Um, but then the caseworker basically says, well, look, I'm going to have to report all this. Um, the fact that you're not acclimating, uh, you, you're not taking care of the house that we gave you, blah, blah, blah. And instantly, Bowl is apologetic. He's like, no, 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 I'm sorry. I don't want to go back. I can't go back to the refugee camp or to my home country. You know, we have no interest in doing this, blah, blah, blah. And it seems like the caseworker relents. The caseworker's like, okay. Tell you what, if you promise to fix the damage that you've done and you show me that you're making an effort to want to be a, a helpful member of society, then I won't report any of this. I'll leave it off of my report and blah, blah, blah. It seems like they're all in agreement. But then here comes the wife down the stairs. Rial comes down the stairs after the caseworkers agree to give Bull a pass. And she says, did you tell them about the witch? And it's like, ah, instantly it's like, shit, why did you say that? And she goes and tells the entire story of the witch and the Apef, um, you know, not in as great a detail as we heard earlier um, at the dinner table. But, you know, she gives, again, a short version about how they're being haunted. Um, something followed them from the Sudan, blah, blah, blah. And, yeah, you can see the caseworkers just instantly are like, oh, boy. Look at what we got to deal with. Uh, they end up leaving. <laughs> uh, they end up leaving the house without really making any concrete decisions. Um, but obviously, them being bureaucrats, you know what's going to happen. They're going to have to report this because, you know, you don't want anybody mentally unstable, um, potentially being violent and dangerous towards other people in the community, because then that looks bad on the caseworker because he's the one who placed them there. So, yeah, uh, that's why he's there making his uh, checkups on them and everything else, blah, blah, blah. Uh, so, yeah, like I said, after um, after the guys leave, Bol and Rial have another quick conversation about the Apeth and that she's convinced that bull has one attached to him. You can kind of tell that he's starting to buy into it. He's starting to actually believe what Rial is telling him. 
So that evening, um, he actually lights a single candle in the in the room, the main room where he's been seeing all the spirits, or at least where he's seeing the highest concentration of spirits. And he lights a single candle, and he basically just sits there until the sun goes down, hoping that he can actually speak to the Apef that is, you know, cursing him. Lo and behold, as the sun goes down, the lights also go down in the house until it's just totally black, and then the candle turns into a campfire. Uh, so, so at this point, uh, we get the image of the outdoors. We're outside, and we're looking at a campfire, and Bull basically just starts talking. Where are you? Who are you? Uh, and then finally, the image comes up, or an image of a person, of a you know large, tall gentleman, uh, shows up in front of, or behind the fire, so that he's very palely lit, but you can still tell there's someone there. And he basically says uh, he calls Bull a thief, and Bull doesn't understand. What do you mean thief? I haven't stolen anything. And he goes. Uh, your life does not belong to you. Your life belongs to me now because of what you did. Um, well, we're not given the explanation yet of quote unquote what he did, but the Apeth is basically very adamant that I will get uh, the debt that you owe. You will repay, um, you know, the debt. And he basically calls him a beast. He says, you're a beast and I am the butcher and I'm going to butcher the beast if he doesn't pay his debt. So um, that scene kind of progresses until basically the campfire goes out and suddenly Bowl once again is standing, mind you, in the middle of the ocean. Uh, there's a storm uh, and he looks and once again he sees people coming out of the water but he closes his eyes and says, stop, I don't want to see this. And you basically see the arms of some spirits come up from behind him, hold his arms behind him so that he can't cover his eyes. And then they turn his head towards his the image of his daughter, who I, I'm not sure what this symbolizes, but uh, she spits out an octopus. I, I wasn't sure if they were going for a Lovecraftian angle or whatever, but yeah, it was really weird. Um, as he's screaming, uh, you know, his daughter's standing there, you know, in the ocean, in the storm, and she spits out an octopus, a full-size octopus. Um, he then come, or should I say, his daydream ends with um, Rial at the house looking at him. I forgot to mention too earlier that uh, Bowl basically broke all the locks in the house so that they couldn't get out. Uh, you know, purposely keeping them in the house for whatever reason. Again, we're talking about a mentally unstable individual. Um, so basically when he come, when his little uh, flashback is done, or well, not really a flashback, but daydream, I guess, uh, basically Rial locks him in a room in the house so that he can't get out. And then Rial ends up escaping the, the, the house herself. But when she climbs out of the window of their house in the UK, she's suddenly back in the Sudan. She's not in the UK. She climbs out the window and she's back in her home village in the Sudan. And we see all these women, uh, you know, walk up to her and hug her and kiss her. Like they haven't seen her in forever. Um, you know, it, it, it's a pretty cool scene. It's like a great reunion with all these female friends. It's all women, so it's got to be 
some kind of wives group or something uh, in the Dinka tribe. Uh, they start chanting and singing in celebration of the return of Rial. But then there's an older woman in the group that uh, Rial doesn't recognize. And she actually says, who are you? And uh, the person, the woman doesn't answer her, just kind of looks at her and kind of tilts her head. But then we hear a voice. And, um, oh, well, before all of that, I'm sorry, um, in the middle of her little whatever she's experiencing, flashback, daydream, whatever, we then see Bull um, dressed much differently than he is in the UK um, with a book bag running around the village looking for Rial. He's actually calling her, but he's not yelling. He's doing that quiet call, Rial, Rial, where are you? Um, so he's obviously ba uh, trying to be quiet for some reason. Uh, he walks by the open door of the room that Rial is in. But at the moment that he walks by, we actually see Rial climb out of a cabinet um, like she was hiding from something. Uh, when she climbs out of the cabinet, she's frozen by whatever it is that she's seeing in front of her. Something in front of her is so horrific that she's just frozen there until Bull finds her and tells her, okay, we need to leave, we need to leave. So as they're leaving the room, the camera pans over and shows us what Rial sees. And, and it's all the women that she was just in the group with, and they're all dead on the ground. They've all been shot by Sudanese warlords. Um, she's basically catatonic. She can't talk. She's just standing there staring at the bodies of all her friends Bull, you know, the good man that he is, basically helps her, gets her out of there, um, and uh, basically takes her to a bus that is taking refugees out of this area. Um, unfortunately, the bus is full. There's too many people on it. And at this point, the person who's in charge of letting people on the bus is basically only letting families on. If you have young children, then you can come on. But obviously, Bol and Rial at this point don't have a daughter. At least it kind of implies that. So he basically looks down and he sees this little girl just standing there, uh, unsupervised, no parent around, no anything. So he basically makes the decision to grab this little girl and tell the person at the door of the bus, let us in. This is my daughter. This is my daughter. We need to get out of here. Um, so eventually, uh, the person lets them on the bus and just as the bus is pulling away, the little girl's real mother shows up and is like, you know, trying to stop the bus. No, that's my daughter. That's my daughter. What are you doing? You're taking my daughter. So now we come, uh, you know, to the first like little major plot reveal that yes, Rial and Bull do not actually have a biological daughter. The daughter that they're talking about was literally the girl that they stole. Um, and, it, and like I said, it, it was a, it was a flash decision. It's not like it was something that they thought about and decided to do. It was a, it was a flash decision. He looks down. He sees the girl. He picks her up. He tells the driver, this is my daughter. Please let us in. Um, once that little flashback scene is done, uh, we go back to Rial and her group of women uh, and basically they all tell her, this is where we get the confirmation, you have no daughter. 
And that's when Rial starts to actually remember, oh, yeah, that girl wasn't actually our daughter. Apparently, Rial was so invested in the thought of this girl being their daughter that she actually started to believe it to the point yeah. where we even we even see scenes uh, later on where she tells the girl, I'll protect you. You know, I'm your mother now, you know, something along those lines. Then we see the actual ocean scene, uh, the real one, not a flashback this time. Well, it is a flashback, but you know what I mean. It's not a dream or, you know, anything creepy, but it's basically. Yeah, it's like the literal recounting of what happened. Exactly. Yeah. So we get we finally see Rial and Bull on the boat with the little girl and all the other refugees. Of course, the boat, like I said, is way overpacked with people. Uh, we don't actually see the boat capsize, but when we go back to the scene, we see people in the ocean swimming, trying to, you know, get back to the boat that they uh, they were able to turn back over. Unfortunately, Bull is not able to get to the little girl, his daughter, as we'll call her. Um, I think her name was Ngaku, something like that. I, for, I forget exactly. Niak. Niak. Uh, there it is. Yep, Niak. Um, so yeah, um, this is where we actually see that, you know, uh, people are dying after they fall off the boat. And then that's when we see, uh, once again, the image of a single person sinking down into the water. And that is Niyak, their daughter, basically succumbing to, you know, the ocean and, uh, passing away, drowning, uh, we then, you know, we're back. We, we go back to the flashback where Rial is back home with all the women who are obviously dead at this point. So it's very definitely something that's happening more in her mind or her subconscious than in real life. And at this point, we hear a voice. Uh, the woman who she doesn't recognize, who she, you know, earlier she asked, who are you? Uh, basically hands her a kitchen knife and basically lets her know that if you uh, if you cut if you sever um, Bull's body, you know if you if you cut him somehow, that uh, the Night Witch, the Apeth, will give her her daughter back. Now during this whole time, um, she's obviously she's actually in the streets of the UK. We actually see her sleeping in an alley when the rain starts coming down and it's the rain that actually snaps her out of her little daydream there. Um, you know, she's not holding a knife or anything. Um, we see, basically we see bowl find her actually carries her all the way home. And for anybody who's seen Lovecraft country, uh, this girl's not a light girl. So bowls a pretty badass, strong dude, um, carries this woman, uh, back home, brings her home, relocks all the doors and windows so that once again, they can't get out. And, um, and I, for, I, I also forgot to mention folks, um, during Bull's flashback, or not flashback, but when he actually spoke to the Apeth, the Apeth did actually say the same thing to him. I want you. Um, so if you if you take this knife, and the Apeth, we actually see the Apeth's hands come out of the shadow with a knife in it, and it, like he's handing it to him, and he actually says, you know, if you if you sever your flesh, uh, you know, I will give your daughter back. Um, but obviously it's it's known that the Apeth wants a uh, bowl, you know, body mm. and soul, everything. You know, he, he's not going to let him survive. He's basically saying, you know, um, cut yourself, giving me access to your body 
and then I will return your daughter, who's not even really your daughter, but again, your daughter, uh, to your wife. And they will live, you know, they will continue living happily without you, blah, blah, blah. So at this point, we are back at the house. Like I said, Bol has carried uh, Rial back home. And, you know, Rial still has that message kind of ringing in her ears that if she, you know, cuts her husband, that she'll get her daughter back. Um, and when she walks into the kitchen, she actually sees the knife, the same knife that the um, spirit in her little daydream tried to give her sitting right there on the counter. And I think she realizes what she needs to do. Um, she actually starts to walk towards the knife, but then walks past it um, all the way to the sink. Bowl notices this, and I think at that moment, Bowl realizes that Rial has also spoken to the Apeth, and that uh, that he basically gave her the same deal. If you cut your husband, I'll give you your daughter back. Um, and she's actually contemplating it, which started to piss me off a little bit, because here we are, th this guy has done nothing but the right thing by you. He's, he got you out of the Sudan. He got you into a home. He, he, he got you out of the alley when you fell asleep in the fucking rain after running away from home. <laughs> I mean, this guy has done nothing but protect this woman, and she's actually still there contemplating killing him for that, the, to get her This is why, yeah. if there's anything that bugged me in the movie, it was kind of her attitude towards the whole situation. But then I think what the flashbacks kind of provided – because most of the movie, I'm thinking like he's the one having you know the issues, but then it's really it's really more so her, and we get that through the flashback, and with it, she has a lot of the guilt over the child that she obviously wanted to take in and kind of raise, and um. But I think that up. To, I think, up go ahead. Oh, well, I was gonna say, and you know, up until she, you know. Up, uh, you're right kind of at the scene where it's where she kind of has her redemption moment but I, she, she like she was like on his case the whole movie like every every yeah. instance where he was trying to make the best of a situation or tried to assimilate because like she would rag him about the singing the so song during the soccer game yeah even when like he was trying to use silverware and she's like oh it just tastes it makes our food taste like metal mm -hmm. um the clothes she was on him the whole time and i think she, at one point she even suggested like they should go back and oh, I'm multiple like, times what? yeah <laughs> yeah so but that's what i mean sure. it's like it, it shows you how short a memory uh, a woman in mourning has, you know, because obviously no one with no one in their right mind wants to go back to that war torn South African country. I mean, it's it's just a hellhole. Yeah. And now you're in the UK. You have a house. You have a means to to you know provide for yourself, or at least the government to provide for you. Mm -hmm. And she's still pining to go back home. But this this is where I disagree with Don, where he was talking about because we're solidly in the third act by now. I actually love these uh, different, whatever you want to call them, daydreams, dream sequences, whatever, because they show that they that both of our uh, protagonists are dealing with survivor's guilt, but I think they're dealing with different survivor's guilt. I, I, um, Bull obviously is dealing with the guilt because of the girl that he basically stole from her mother just so that they could escape uh, from their region. 
And, of course, all the rest of the people that died on that trip that, um, you know, when the boat capsized and he wasn't able to save them because he actually talks about the regret that he has that he wasn't able to save anyone uh, later in the film. But then I think with Rial, her survivor's guilt isn't necessarily the child and the people that died on that boat trip. I think it's more about the women that she left behind because don't forget, she hid in a cabinet to survive that attack. That's mm-hmm. that's a major survivor's guilt right there. She basically was a coward and hid and everyone else died except for her because of her cowardice. And I think that takes a toll on people's psyche. I think it definitely um, made her it, it gave her her own version of the survivor's guilt. Um, and I think that the daughter or, you know, the quote unquote daughter was kind of a replacement for all of these women that she lost in her home village. And that by losing her daughter, it kind of makes it feel like she's losing her friends and family all over again. So, like I said, I I actually really like those two scenes because they show the difference in the guilt that they're harboring. It's not the same. It is the same survivor's guilt, but it's based around different things. And I, I just love that. That little dichotomy just really worked for me for whatever that's worth. So, well, uh-huh. no, I was going to say, it's not that I don't dislike what's going on. It's just, I don't like the wishy-washy nature of how everybody just tends to be one scene. They're back together. That's where my thing is, is that Mike hit it more on the head is that all film long, she's been nagging him to go back. And now all of a sudden what happens here, we're, I mean, we're going to get to it in a second, but it's just one scene and all of a sudden, she's changed her mind. It, right. But that scene in her head was probably very long. I mean, it was all the women in her tribe, you know, that whole reunion scene. And then the actual, you know, real life scene of them all dying and them escaping everything else. I, I Like I said, the disconnect between these two from the beginning is very apparent. You know, she's definitely more about her home. She wants to stay home to the point where she never, ever in this movie until the last five minutes of the film actually calls this place her home. Because because whenever Bowl says, let's go home, he means the house in the UK. Whereas when Rial says, I want to go home, she means the Sudan. So there's definitely yeah. a disconnect there. But at the same time, I mean, these are two refugees. They don't know anyone else from the Sudan in in that region of the UK. Um, I've, I've said it multiple times already. They're strangers in a strange land. They're trying to behave. I think her complacency in being mad at him one minute and then going back uh, the next is more her realization of what she needs to survive. She can't survive in the UK without bowl period. She would not survive. Um, she has no skill set. You know, they're not going to give her a job. They're not giving her citizenship, blah, blah, blah. Um, she needs, she kind of needs bowl. Not to say that a woman needs a man, blah, blah, blah. I know it's 2020, but I'm saying in this particular instance, it definitely felt like, you know, bowl was the driving force of this marriage. And maybe she regretted that a little bit because she does talk, uh, with the doctor about how women, you know, don't always have their own choices in the Sudan. And that's why she gave herself the scarf, the, the second set of scarification she actually gave to herself. It wasn't, um, you know, a ceremony, uh, you know, part of a, a rite of passage or anything. So 
I don't know. For whatever it's worth, it totally worked for me. It, it came off as very believable, very organic. Um, I never questioned it. And like I said, just the way that those scenes are kind of framed and shot, I just, especially the campfire thing with the Apeth, I absolutely love that scene. The sound design is amazing, blah, 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 blah. When um, she, when but, she finally says it's time to go home. And, and that's you get a the, good idea. She's that's her realization. That's the first time that she says. Yeah. It's time to go home. I'm gonna and and she actually means the UK because you know she realizes there was nothing that she could do for her friends in the Sudan. Either she hides in the cabinet or she dies with them. So that's that that's the major survivor's guilt right there. So anyway, back to the climax of our movie. Um, we are in the kitchen. Like I said, uh, Rial walks past the knife almost like she was contemplating grabbing it, but decides not to. Bowl notices that. I think Bowl realizes at that point, like I said, that she's been given the same offer. And to save her the stress of the decision that she has to make, uh, we hear two knife swipes in the background. She turns around and we see that Bowl has cut a large segment of his arm out with the kitchen knife and basically says, you know, lets her know that, you know, I, I just wanted to save you from having to do this, blah, blah, blah. I mean, Jesus, th this guy is an absolute angel in this fucking movie. So yeah, for, for, for this woman, for even a second to contemplate taking him out for her daughter, well, quote unquote daughter is uh, a little bit of a slap in the face, but again, uh, uh I, I, I digress. So um, at this point, um, they, they have come to the realization that the Apeth is going to be showing up soon and basically taking Bull with, her, with him and then leaving the daughter with her at the house in the UK, which I'm sure is going to be really hard to explain to the case worker, but whatever. Um, they basically have a very tearful moment. They basically kind of say their goodbyes, if you will, because they kind of, you know, make the realization that he's going to die and she's going to be there alone with the daughter. So blah, blah, blah. She ends up walking out of the kitchen. And as soon as she walks out of the kitchen, uh, the lights in the kitchen start to flicker. We start seeing things moving. Um, the walls start to shake and suddenly a giant hole, well, not giant, but a big hole in the kitchen floor suddenly appears. Out of that hole comes our Apeth. Yes, so we finally get our first good look at the Apeth. And I got to say, I really like this design on this guy. He's um, He's got kind of a zombie quality to him, kind of demonic. He's got the white eyes, which I've always been a fan of, um, you know, a tattered skin, very loose, floppy skin on him. Um, he looks a lot like the gentleman from uh, that episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. I don't know if you guys remember the, the, that group of guys that um, stole people's voices. Uh, Doug Jones played the leader, if anybody knows what the hell I'm talking about. Well, that's a lot what this guy looks like, uh, but a naked version, whereas the gentleman in that episode all wore suit and ties. This guy's butt naked, but no penis. Go figure. So he's like a Ken doll. Um, so yeah, like I said, uh, the Apeth makes his appearance, crawls towards Bull, basically, you know, does his growling thing and smiles at him. And then basically he starts digging his fingers into the open wound in Bull's arm at the exact moment that the Opeth is doing that, we then see Rial 
in the living room by herself and her hand is grabbed by a little hand, a child. Uh, and we basically see that, yes, the daughter is standing behind her. She never turns around to actually look at her, almost like she's having trouble accepting it. But, um, you know, we definitely see someone there grabbing her hand. Um, at that moment, though, she has one last flashback to, uh, oh, shit. Sorry, I thought my computer crashed. <laughs> um, she basically has one last flashback back to her uh, group of women uh, in the Sudan. And, you know, that's when she makes that statement. I'm going home, blah, blah, blah. Uh, she ends up back at home with the Apeth still attacking Bull. She lets go of the hand of the little child hand that grabbed hers. She goes into the kitchen, grabs the knife that Bull already cut himself with, and comes up behind the Apeth and slices his throat open. Now, I didn't know that's all you had to do to kill a supernatural being was just cut its throat, but there it is. Um, for whatever it, it's worth, it works enough for this film. Uh, so the Apeth is lying on the ground dead. Bull and Rial are both, uh, you know, kind of just breathing heavy and staring at each other. And then we get one final scene. It's the next, well, it's not the next day, but it's probably a, a few days or weeks later. We now see more caseworkers, but these caseworkers are more well-dressed. So obviously they're probably like the supervisors of, of Matt Smith's uh, caseworker. But when they get to the house, uh, we already see that Bowl has indeed started fixing the walls. All the holes are patched up. It looks like he's starting to put wallpaper back up on the walls. Uh, the hole in the kitchen where the Apeth came out has a carpet on top of it now, uh, so it's not visible to any of the visitors. And uh, we see Matt Smith look at the couple and say, you know, you guys seem like you're doing pretty good. And he asks, so is there still a witch? And Bull kind of smiles and says, uh, Rial killed it. And and Matt lets out a chuckle. Uh, the caseworker uh, lets out a little chuckle. Uh, but obviously... Uh, you know, he kind of understands that they're just in a better headspace now, blah, blah, blah. And then Rial says something that's very non-Rial. She basically looks at uh, her husband and says, I'd like to paint this room red. Kind of showing that she's finally accepting this place as her home. And, and then the last thing, um, you know... Uh, Basically, um, the caseworker asks, well, what about the rats? What about the rats and the vermin that you were complaining about? And he says, well, maybe I was being a little dramatic. And then he starts talking about um, apparently at some point, Bull must have told the caseworker that he saw his daughter in the house because the caseworker asks him, do you still see her? And he says, yes, every day. Um, we never really escape are ghosts, but when I when I finally accepted them, I could start to face myself and face my own guilt. I mean, he doesn't say it in so many words, but I mean, you know, paraphrase something along those lines. Um, but, and I love that message. I absolutely fucking love that message. We live with our ghosts always. Uh, we may come to terms with our guilt, but it's always still there. Uh, whenever we think about it, we're always going to have that guilty feeling, whether it be guilt, regret, remorse. There's always, quote unquote, ghosts that we live with. And I love that symbolism for this film. Uh, then the final line of the movie is 
um, Rial looking at the caseworker and basically saying, this is our home and we don't want to leave. And, you know, the caseworker's like, well, all right, then I, I think we're good here. They all end up leaving. And then we see Rial and Bol standing in their house by themselves. But then the camera pans towards the hallway and we see their daughter, their quote unquote daughter, uh, but not in a spirit form, just a very much in her human form. Uh, just standing there kind of looking. Then the camera pans back to Bol and Rial, and then we see all of the refugees that died uh, during the trip, during their escape. They're all basically in their house, but they're not doing anything violent. Um, basically giving the symbolism of they've come to terms with their guilt. They realize that they will be living with their ghosts uh, pretty much for the rest of their lives. And they've accepted it. You know, mm -hmm. they, he, he's come to terms with his guilt. He's come to terms with the things that he did to help his wife and himself escape uh, the Sudan. And then then the camera pans back to them one last time and just shows them standing there by themselves and uh, fade to black and roll credits. And it, yeah. it, it kind of reminds me somewhat of the end of end of the Babadook because it's almost like Absolutely. the acknowledgement by the mom where she'd never 100% get rid of it but if she learns how to kind of contain it in a back chamber of her mind and do what she needs to do to like manage mm -hmm. it so, yeah, this movie, yeah, this movie is absolutely the Baba Duke. I mean, you know, obviously, and it's in the UK too. Wasn't the Baba Duke set in the UK? New, Ze the New Zealand or New Zealand. Australia? Oh, Aussie. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Um, but yeah, no, this movie is very much a you know 2020 Baba Duke. You know, only um, this one's good. Yeah, <laughs> shut up. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> um, yeah, uh, <laughs> that'll be an argument for another day. Uh, yeah, yeah, uh, really. Like I said, I've already talked this movie up. Really, really enjoyed this. I enjoyed all the symbolism, the social commentary, the uh, you know the the whole story of just dealing with guilt and dealing with our quote unquote ghosts. I absolutely loved it. Actually, just sitting here talking about it actually made me like it a little bit more. I still don't think this is even going to sniff my top 10, but it is an awesome, awesome film. And and if I did a top 10 of directorial debuts, this would definitely be on there. Because even though we've had a lot of good ones this year, this is definitely a great movie. May not be the kind of thing that works for everyone. Like I said, it's not really gory. It's not bloody. Um, actually, there's no on-screen kills, right? If I remember correctly. Yeah. I mean, unless you want to count the drowning or the death of the Opeth, but Yeah, yeah, I mean, assuming that actually happened. Like I said, we Yeah. Can, I mean, know, like I said, like I said well, it's like I said, I mean, unless you want to count the Opeth, but Right, right, right. Um like and like I said, depending on the type of viewer you are, you might walk away from this movie basically saying, "Oh yeah, all the supernatural stuff actually happened," or you could walk away like the Baba Duke thinking you know, there are no ghosts, there are no spirits, this was just them dealing with their guilt, and, you know, her killing the Apeth was her basically coming to terms with the fact that she's giving up her quote-unquote daughter, and, you know, um, trusting in her husband again, you know, the man who's done everything for her this whole movie. Um, so, yeah, again, just some great symbolism. Either way you take this movie, whether you take it at face value 
and say that everything actually happened, or you take it as a more psychological thriller angle that this is just that none of this actually happened, that this is all in their head, blah, blah, blah. Obviously the, the drownings and, you know, the escape and all that actually happened. But as far as the haunting at the house, I could see people making the argument that it's all psychological and it's just them dealing with their demons, blah, blah, blah. So, but either way that you take it, I think the movie works on both levels and it's really just a stellar debut from this director. Once again, his name is Remy Weeks, uh, W-E-E-K-E-S. So definitely be on the lookout uh, uh, for that director. And uh, yeah, another great movie. It's on Netflix. So if you have access to a Netflix account, I don't think there's any reason not to see this. It didn't really, oh, it didn't drop on Netflix. It, it dropped like the day before Halloween. So I wasn't really able to make it one of my October watches. But I'm very glad that we uh, still went ahead and looked at this one. Even though it's a couple of weeks old now, this is a great film that I think a lot of horror fans need to experience. And I'm going to shut up now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I agree I, with that. Yeah, I don't have much else. Um, I mean, like I said, I'm not a fan of the wishy-washy nature of how she changes so easily, but... Uh, it's not necessarily detrimental. It's not really a big nagging issue, but it's just something that just it that I didn't care for the way they handled it. So it, I don't have too many issues with it. You know, everything in this is a lot of fun and really worthwhile. So definitely, like I, like you said, definitely recommend. Hey, we got a horror sure. movie with Doctor Who in it, so that's always fun. <laughs> well, did we do that with um, open? Or the, the the crappy home invasion slasher we covered with the uh, oh the rental no no the the one you were here for the home invasion one where the kids turn out um open uh it was the one where the the doctor and his they the kids rob the doctor and his wife and the doctor oh oh uh, the others well, right the one with the girl from Game of Thrones yeah but I don't oh, think that's God. her I don't yeah. think that's her. Um, crap, what was that fucking movie? I don't think it's Others, because that's the one with Nicole Kidman. No, no, it was, it was, it was also called The Others, uh, the, the movie it? that we're talking about with the mansion, yeah. Because I saw the box the other day at Walmart, I was like, hmm, I might buy it, but then again, no. <laughs> mm. well, I'm saying, I remember you bringing up the fact that one of the, the doc, the, the guy in there was one of the doctors, so. Oh, that's right. Yeah, the, uh, that's right. The, the old doctor. Yeah, you're right. He was the third or fourth doctor, whereas Matt Smith is like the 10th or 11th doctor. So definitely. I mean, he still looks young. So he, he definitely was a young Doctor Who. But yeah. Um, ah, man. Awesome movie. I think I'm going to go watch this again. This was good. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well. Before we wrap the episode up, let's figure out or find out if there's any other shows any of us have done since last recording. Venom, what do you got? I mean, other than our stuff, I nothing really much more. Uh, we planned out our next episode of Normal Room and Hep. It'll be uh, be out. Uh, the main show should be out before Thanksgiving. Hopefully, we'll be recording it that week. Um. And then on It's Not Horror Okay, I actually missed the last episode because I was, uh, the wife and I had a date night and we went to the drive-in and saw some classic horror. So that was fun. And uh, I 
The and funny thing actually, about that is I was actually going to fill in for you on that one, but because it starts a little bit earlier, I had something come up like that uh, was kid-related, and I couldn't get home in time. For some reason, I, st- I thought you still did it. <laughs> I talked to those guys so infrequently that I, I for some reason, I totally thought you were still on the episode because I knew you like, were supposed to be covering for me, yeah. Yeah, I could have done it if I could have joined in progress, but I didn't want to mess up like any, you know, flow of the show by like popping in later ah, so Gary Hill does it all the time you could have done it <laughs> I'll, I'll get in on an episode soon definitely definitely uh we will be recording a new episode of that this week um there seems to be some confusion on what the movie is so we're either going to be looking at kill uh kill and kill again which is the sequel to Killer Be Killed, uh, the uh, martial arts movie from South Africa in 1980. Uh, we did that one a couple of months ago. We were supposed to do the sequel this week, but then someone else brought up Repo Man, uh, and apparently everybody's really gung-ho about wanting to do Repo Man now. So I guess, uh, and that's the 80s Repo Man, mind you, not the newer one. Um, but yeah, uh, I, I, we're two days away from that recording, and I still don't know what movie we're doing. But ultimately, it's a commentary podcast, so you know there's not really a whole lot of preparation involved. So uh, whatever movie it is, look for that to come out sometime next week, I would imagine. And then finally, I can announce the return of In the Mic of Madness. Yes, Rebecca Reinhardt hey. is finally done with, um, well, done for now with a lot of her independent film projects. You know, she's played uh you know she's been an actress she's done producer stuff she's uh, done gaffer i mean she's uh she's basically a all hands uh type horror chick and we love her for it so yes she's finally back and we plan on doing an episode next week though we are not sure if we're gonna complete our hen and lotter retrospective first or if we're going to do something uh, a little bit more related to a certain box set that came out last month that just happens to be the favorite franchise of all three of the hosts on that show. So we may do a special episode on that box set, uh, or we'll do the Hen and Lotter. We'll complete our Hen and Lotter retrospective, which all we have left are the three Basket Case movies at this point. So those should be pretty quick to get through. Um, so look for that on the Prescribed Films Podcast Network sometime around the end of November. And that's it for me. All right, Don, you got anything? Uh, the only thing that I've recorded, which may be coming out soon, is a commentary on the black and white version of Lucio Fulci's Zombie. Ooh. Yeah. Nice. Um, yeah, that one was kind of, it was a, you know, typical Bay of Blood thing. Just, hey, you up? You got a movie? All right, let's record. <laughs> I love getting those you up messages from uh, from Will. Yeah, yeah typical uh, Bay of Blood recording thing. You know, you up? Want to record? All right, you got a movie? All right, let's do it. <laughs> oh, so good. Yeah, so 30-minute uh, prep time for that one. Um I had no idea when that's coming out. Um, I do know that now that we're on uh, Dark Discussions, I've noticed that a lot of um, episodes, including some that I wasn't able to make because with so little notice, I didn't have time to prepare or record or was even available to do it. So um, I noticed a couple of them are being published, although they're not necessarily um, being marked as new episodes. They're being backdated, which I didn't know you could do that, but... um, 
Yeah, um, uh, some of those episodes are now starting to come out on uh, the Dark Discussions feed. So uh, pay attention to that because I don't know the order. I mean, they're just releasing them randomly. So uh, some of the episodes may have me on there. Some of them may not. Uh, you know, like I said, uh, Bay of Blood recording schedule is just basically what I mentioned a few minutes ago. So I don't have, um, I don't, I'm not on everyone, but I do show up when I can. Uh, I, I, like I said, I've just noticed that some of those have included me. Some of them may not. So, you know, if you want me on there, fantastic. If not, just pay attention to the feed, but best I can do at the moment. And uh, other than that, yeah, uh, just all I have so far. All right. And as far as I go, um, just the regular shows, but I also managed to record a new episode of Burning for Springwood with Gary Hill and Suzanne this past week. So if you're into those Freddy's Nightmares breakdown, we went over episodes 17 and 18 of season one. We're getting close to the end of season one, finally, so I guess that can be considered an achievement. <laughs> but we're going to try to get back into doing it more just, often. We had a mini hiatus. I'll um, just Gary recording in general is a treasure, so. Yeah, yeah it's always a good time. But uh, yeah, that's it for me. So, Venom, what do we have on the horizon here? I know there's a I few out there. Pe- Peninsula is mean, still out there, Possessor's out there. Um, I mean, I, like I mentioned at the beginning of the show, I I watched The Dark and the Wicked this weekend, and uh, I don't want to say too much in case we decide to do that one, but I had a really good time with that movie. And that's currently on BOD, The Dark yes, and sir. the Wicked? Mm-hmm. You yeah, know where we think, can find it. <laughs> yeah, I think it was yeah. uh, released, Not, I think it was released like either Thursday or Friday, yeah, it makes sense. Is that the yeah. one with the box art where it's like the huge upside down red cross? That's it. Okay. The movie that Mark Nato of the horror cast said is now his number one movie of the year. Yeah, that's the one where it looked really intriguing to me. Yeah, I that watched might be the next thing I watch and, because yeah. Yeah, I was I was actually supposed to have reviewed that when I covered Fantasia, but they never gave me third party access screeners. Ah, too bad. Uh, yeah. That one, I was supposed to have been one of the highlights from the ones that I heard were able to get it. Mm-hmm. But um, for me, yeah, that one was third party and they couldn't get it to me. So, I mean, right. I think it's a good. I think it would be a pretty good choice. It's available for us, and you know, like I said, I don't want to say too much, but uh, let's just say I'm almost on board with Mark Nado's statement. I'll leave it at that. Well, not and I definitely plan for that. I definitely won't mind watching it a second time either. <laughs> yeah, well, let's plan for that, and if if there's any reason to go away from that, we will. But let's let's count on that one. That's good. All right. Well, that's gonna do it for this episode of Fresh Cuts. Don, I'm I'm sounding like a broken record at the end of every episode, but thanks for coming back again. <laughs> Always fun to be here. <laughs> All right, well, that will do it. Catch everybody in about a week. And until then, later, everybody. Later. Adios.